0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Turns out you've been doing passwords wrong. But don't worry, we've got the latest and greatest guidance straight from the NIST. Then we've got the latest numbers from Backblaze with some interesting conclusions about enterprise drives and all the details about that Google Docs worm everyone's talking about with some top tips for how to make sure you stay safe. Then it's your fantastic feedback, a rambunctious roundup, And so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode is streamed live on May 9th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three most excellent sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting and iX systems. My name is Wes and joining me this week is the man whose backups are so good he's probably already backed up your stuff. Yeah, that's right. It's our friend Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Good afternoon. Hello everybody. Wonderful to see you again this week. Uh, anything new with your beautiful rack or the magnificent studio behind you?
1: Uh not not the rack. Um I did manage to break my network on oh. Sunday. That no, on fun. Saturday. Saturday afternoon I broke my network and I wasn't really worried about it until I remembered that it was the next day was the first Sunday. And the first Sunday of the month is always full backups in this house.
0: Oh, right.
1: So I had to get that working in a hurry and I got it working in a hurry by removing all the VLANs. That's not a good thing.
0: So it was a little bit of a compromise.
1: A big compromise. Usually there's six or seven VLANs running, and I screwed mm-hmm. it all up Saturday afternoon. So I said, okay, no VLANs, let's go with that.
0: So have you managed to get things all restored now? Nope. Mm.
1: S- Sunday was the Broad Street run. Uh, Sunday afternoon was a birthday party. And then Sunday night was recovery. And then Monday was busy again, went out to dinner. So
0: that oh, no. sounds nice. I know how you I feel.
1: May not may not get to it until the weekend.
0: I had the privilege of spending this uh, last weekend at Linux Fest Northwest, which was a ah. ton of fun. I got to meet Alan for the first time in person. Yes, which was also great. Yes, um, check out some all kinds of stuff. The IX booth was uh, the FreeBSD booth was awesome. The there's a Postgres booth that I enjoyed a lot. There was so much good stuff. But I know how you feel. It's like okay, we'll come back to real life now and try to catch up on all the little things I've let slip by the wayside.
1: Who was at the FreeBSD booth? Do you remember any
0: names? You know, I'm not sure. I mostly got distracted talking to Alan, and then the, the next time I was there, no one was there, so I just had to grab some stickers anyway.
1: What about the Postgres booth? Any names there?
0: I did not get to talk to anyone. I just got to uh, kind of hang right. around. Yeah. There was a lot of people there. It was awesome, though. It seemed like a lot of people were having uh, having fun at the Postgres booth, getting some good what? conversations. They had a the adorable knit uh, little elephant.
1: Oh, yes. I know that. Yeah, that
0: thing was awesome.
1: Yeah. Uh what city was it in?
0: It was in Bellingham, Washington. Mm. Which is a lovely town if you've never been there. I highly recommend it perhaps next year you should come on out.
1: Yes, this is my busy time of year
0: because mm. mm-hmm.
1: in a couple of weeks, next week I head up to Ottawa prep for PG Con.
0: Oh,
1: right. So, I'm you know, all my mornings and evenings are taken up with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, awesome. Well, that's a lot to look forward go away to. Can't yet.
1: Yes. Anything else
0: we should add before we jump into our uh, jam-packed show today?
1: Got screen cleaner coming tomorrow.
0: Oh, screen cleaner, huh? What is that? Tell me more.
1: You know, just little. Oh, just that. Got it. Spritz, spritz. spritz
0: yeah. I was imagining you'd hired like a handyman to come in and custom and clean. professionally mm-hmm.
1: clean my screens. No, so um, now I'm just disappointed. Yeah, uh, little. Bottle of Belkin from Belkin or whatever. Um, I can't find it. I think in the last redo of the office, it got set aside and it's somewhere hidden. So I decided to order new stuff. That's all. Sorry, it's not as exciting as it sounded.
0: Not at all. All right. Well, if you're like in the mood to redo your office, one thing that maybe you would have done in the past, redo your password. Hey, don't do that anymore. We've got some uh, some new password standards and they might not be what you think they are.
1: These standards came from NIST, and most people have probably never heard of NIST, and they don't know what it stands for. It is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and they do a lot of things. And I wanted to come out with a list of all the different things they're responsible for, and I didn't. I ran out of time. Um, but there are some interesting things that they're saying, things that I've actually thought of before and didn't. You know, I said, why are we doing this? It's such a waste of time. So the first thing they say is no more periodic password changes. Just set your password and forget it. Don't worry about changing it. The theory there was, I guess, if someone's stolen your password, they're still using it. So you change it so it breaks off their access. But it seems that that really doesn't happen all that often. And so the benefits of changing your password all the time... Aren't there? It's it's not worth it, and, and plus, it was a lot of compliance factor for various departments. You know, have you changed your password? When's the last time you changed your password? Is it the same as what you used last time? Stuff like that, and it's a pain in the butt. Didn't seem to help. So, uh, the next rule is no more imposed complexity. So, you know, you have to have so many characters of this and so many characters of that and a mix of that and a mix of this that they're saying, no, that doesn't really help. Just let them be, let people use whatever they want and it should be fine. Now, on on the other side of it, I was trying to set a password on a big company's website just recently And they wouldn't let me use less than's or greater than's or um, a whole bunch of other things that I thought would be perfectly valid. Like no less than, no greater than, no um, closing or open parentheses, no percentage, no semicolon, no slash, no quotes, no periods. None of those were allowed.
0: Yikes, yeah, I hate those. You're like, I'm trying my best here to put in a secure password and you're stopping me.
1: Yeah, yeah. don't know how to HTML yeah, encode right. something. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not. They're they're trying to validate it, I guess, in JavaScript or something. But don't do that. Mm-hmm. Just send it to the back end and MD5 it, and you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty frustrating.
1: So the other thing they recommended is validating the password that you're entering against a long list of. Passwords you really shouldn't use, such as password and one two three four five six stuff like that. So they decided, you know, that that seems fairly valid. Um, don't set it to your username. Don't set it to your dog's name. Really, get a password manager. Use it. Most password managers will create a random password for you. You know, and you can you can set it. To, you know, I want a ten, I want this to be 10 letters. I want this to be 16 characters. You can do a combination of uppercase, lowercase, special characters, stuff like that. And if it generates a password for you and you find it's not compatible with who you're entering in, just go in and delete the characters that, they're, that they don't allow and then save that, use that. Um, sometimes I use random strings for the security questions they give you. Like, what high school did you go to? Well, um, everybody knows that. How about I give you some gibberish and put that in there? And I store store that in my password manager as well. Um, sometimes I use a, you know, when they let you choose your user ID, sometimes I generate a random string and use that as my user ID. Um, I don't ever have to be on the phone and read out what my, user ideas to someone, I think they'll have a lot of trouble. Um, So why why are these no longer enforced? Why are some of these very routine things that we used to do all the time uh, no longer useful? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's two-factor authentication now. They talk about that briefly. But more importantly, Most of the the breaches that we have are password disclosures, not necessarily the password, but the the hash of the password. Sometimes it's the password itself. But if it's the hash of the password, and you've got a rainbow table, which is like a reverse lookup where they've gone and they've uh, encrypted a whole bunch of common passwords, and that's why you don't want to use a common password, And so, they have the MD5 or the hash or whatever it is of that password, and they get your password, which is encrypted or hashed, and they can just look it up against this table and say, oh, that value relates to this password. Bang, we have your password. So, so long as it's a password that's not easily guessed, and it's not likely to already be in a rainbow table, that's what they call these lookup tables, um chances are it's pretty good. It's not going to be guessed. Um, there's a lot of stuff in place to prevent brute force attacks, so that someone can't sit there and try this password, try that password. Usually websites and stuff like that say, haha, you've tried too many attempts on this, um, so bye, and they block you. So if you're using a password manager, And using a different password for every site you're using, and not just the sites, you know, also your um, database passwords and stuff like that. Use a different password every time. Don't repeat it. And if one place gets breached, it'll only be accessible in that one place. And hopefully they will tell you that it's been breached and you can change it. But, yeah, use a password manager. I think you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think that's good advice. And there, I, I think we've seen a lot more adoption, especially with some of the commercial s- services like LastPass, et cetera, that, you know, it's, a lot more people can use it. It's a lot more accessible than it once was. And it fits in, I know it works really well for me when I can be like, okay, I'll just generate the secure password. I don't know even need to know what it is. I just save it in my, you know, save it yeah. in default vault. And in a way, I don't know what my email password is. I don't, I don't need to. And therefore it can be as complex as, as possible.
1: And it can't be, Beaten out of you?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <coughs> I mean, my master it, password could, but
1: yeah. But if you don't have that,
0: yeah. Exactly. Excellent. Well, uh, uh will this change any of how you approach things day to day? No. Yeah.
1: I didn't think so. I'm. I'm already. Um, I'm already uh, using a password manager, uh, and I don't let the password manager autofill my password either. I you know I open the password manager. I click, click on the password. it automatically does a copy, and then I do a paste. Uh, I never see the password because it's all like um, asterisks, but yeah, i don't I don't autofill just because I don't think that's a good idea.
0: yeah, no, I think that i'm I'm thankful i I've never gone down that path. It seems like one of those features, um, like a lot of things you find with like proprietary software, or other things. Once you've experienced it, once you're like, oh, this is so convenient, my passwords just fill in for me. Then it's very hard to make the transition away from that. But if you just haven't done it, and it's not—it's never too big of a deal for me to just copy and paste. Or you know, on Android they have like the little keyboards that will pop up, so you can fill things in that way, which works pretty nicely as well.
1: Yeah. Um, what I like about my password manager on my laptop is that when you open it up and you you, you open it up and then you type uh, command find. And then you type something that relates to the password. It might be the password uh, website name or mm. something like that. Or when I'm looking for SSH, I do the, the name of the device I'm SSHing from and then SSH. Mm. So mm. the, the, laptop, the la- laptop host name and SSH, and that'll find it for me. Nice. And then the VPN passwords and stuff like that. It, it, it's very quick. It takes longer to type my password into the password manager than it does to copy yeah. that, find yeah. the password and copy it over. Right, yeah, exactly.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that works very nicely. Uh, anything else you want to add about the these, these new recommendations?
1: I think they'll be slow to implement these changes. Some people will jump on them real quick, but I can't see the bigger places saying, hey, this is a good idea, let's not do it. I can see some bigger places being too scared to make these changes.
0: Yeah. right yes exactly um that you know it, it would be a big change and things around security policies in particular there's a lot of auditing involved in other things and it might might be more work than it's worth for a lot of people or at least you know feel that way
1: which yes. is too bad
0: i know i would be glad uh, not to have to uh you know especially since like a lot of these like for like periodic password changes i know a lot of people who just you know they'll rotate the last digit on their password or something so it, yeah so it ends up like all right well then if you've if you've been exposed, that's that's now trivially crackable if you know like what it used to be. Yeah. And the channel
1: just said, I try to advise family and friends to use a phrase or a sentence instead of one word as a password, if that makes sense. they had asked me, do you, do you mean a passphrase or a password? Mm. Well, a, a passphrase is often associated with encryption or, or uh, an SSH, SSH key. But when I'm using a password manager... All it's generating for me is random. I don't have to remember anything except the master password, so it's just random characters it generates, which is theoretically harder to guess than a passphrase. Yeah. But yeah, that, that that's the difference I think between the password and the passphrase. I am using pass words, not pass phrases.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, I look forward to seeing, seeing what kind of adoption. Hopefully, in you know, like a year from now, I can report that I no longer have to change my password every <laughs> every X number of days, but uh, we'll see. Yep. Uh, so if this article has made you feel just fed up with passwords, you're fed up with places that don't have good secure password requirements or don't let you do that, or you just want to get away from passwords entirely... Make sure your next host is spun up at our friends at DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There you will find cloud computing designed for developers, designed to make it easy, designed to be simple through and through. They do that by starting out with an amazing API. They've built all their systems on it. They dog food this stuff. They know how seriously you, ta- you want the API functionality. So that's what they've done. On top of that, they've layered an incredible dashboard. This thing lets you control pretty much all aspects. It's super simple. It's intuitive. It's not it's not complex. It doesn't hide details. It's not hard to use. They make it so easy to get started. You just head on over to their site. Text You know, go over to DigitalOcean. We've got an awesome promo code. Yeah, that's right. I mean, don't don't spread this too far. Actually, spread it as far as you want. Snap ocean. One word, SnapOcean that'll get you started with a $10 credit. Their prices start at just $5 a month. And in under 55 seconds, you can have a brand new VPS. They make it easy too, because you can upload your SSH key, that new VPS baby, that'll spin right up with that key there. You don't need to mess with passwords, you have secure access to that VPS. Boom, easy peasy. Plus, they've been doing a lot to to really make it an enterprise grade, feature rich, well-rounded platform. They've added things like load balancing, monitoring. Here we see you can get request early access to their high CPU droplets. So if you are, you know, you're doing a bunch of big data work, you have um, some transcoding or other situations where you really have a high CPU, CPU bound workload, now DigitalOcean's gonna have a solution for that as well. Things like private networking, you know, two droplets, same data center, networking, yeah, that's that private networking between them. That's free. Don't pay for that. Makes things like backups, snapshots, transferring those things super simple. DigitalOcean understands that you know, this stuff doesn't have to be complicated. They can be the minimum barrier to entry between you and launching your awesome new product, or spinning up a cool new own cloud instance, or just, you know, playing with Linux or FreeBSD for the first time. You don't want to necessarily wipe your machine. DigitalOcean is an awesome place to do that. Plus, to help you, they have an incredible community of people who've written guides. DigitalOcean hires real editors to go then turn those guides into awesome, top-notch documentation. So, if you want to get started playing with any of this stuff, go right on over to digitalocean.com, use our promo code snapocean. That'll get you a $10 credit to get started, and believe me, you'll be hooked. So thank you to our friends over at Digital Ocean. Awesome. I almost just want to stop the show. I'll just I'll just go play with some droplets right, but no. No, we're in the middle of something, and we have important things to talk about like our next story. Enterprise hard disks are they faster? They are faster. They use more power, but are they more reliable? I don't know. I, this I, I thought this was really interesting. I hear a lot about it. I've you know discussed it with with coworkers and things about you know oh you should always use the enterprise drives or I never use the enterprise drives. So it's interesting to have a little guidance. Tell us more, Dan. I uh, uh,
1: I don't have any enterprise drives anywhere here. None. They're all consumer drives, seventy two hundred RPM. Um, They vary in size from 3 to 5 terabytes. Most of them are Toshibas. There are a few others. Now, people show up all the time in forums and say, what's a good hard drive to use? Should I use these? Should I use those? And people will say, rather than say, use this, they'll say, don't use that. I had one of those die and it did this. And the problem I have with that approach is It doesn't matter what hard drive you choose. Someone will have a horror story about it failing and dying. And that's because hard drives fail and die. Except for mine. They don't fail. Touch wood. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pick one and then stick with it and use it. And cater or count on the fact that one of them is going to die. And don't worry too much about choosing the exact hard drive that gives you the absolutely best performance because i think a lot of that varies according to environment and what you're doing to it and slightly upon the construction methods um i don't think it varies much within a batch of drives but i don't know why some drives wind up having higher drive failures but anyway i'm getting a little too ranty and esoteric about how how things work and don't work what i did find interesting is the difference here what they're talking about enterprise drives use more power they use between instead of nine watts idle instead of 7.2 watts idle for a consumer drive they're at nine watts idle and 10 watts operational as opposed to 9 watts for, for a consumer drive. So that's not a lot. That's just 1 or 1.8 more watts per drive. Which, as I point out, if you only have 2 or 3, that's not a big deal. But Backblaze has racks of 20 storage pods, each of which which have, have 860 disks. So what's that? Uh, 1,200 drives. So they're saying that's an extra 2.2 kilowatts. That's more than what my UPS down here does. It's a a 2.2 kVA UPS. But wow, that's a lot. That's a big difference if if you have a whole rack full of drives. If you get that at home, racks of drives like that,
0: not not really, not a. not in that volume anyway. No, I don't have it.
1: So now do do you recall if Hitachi or was sold to Toshiba? Toshiba bought them, something like that. Because I think a lot of these HGSTs are, are actually now Toshiba drives and I remember
0: Yeah, I believe so that they or they at least acquired the the hard drive sub yeah. company.
1: Yeah. And some of the Toshiba's in here have a very low rate, like less than 1% annualized failing rate. If you look across all, all the hard drives that they've got, and they do have a lot of drives, it's 30, 34,000 is the biggest group they have. And those fail at a rate of 3%. But the average is two. And there are one, two, three four, five, six, seven drives, which are below 2%, and one, two, three, four, five of those seven drives are HGSTs, the Hitachis. Now, I'm sure about that, right? The HGST is a is Hitachi? Um, I'm quite sure.
0: Yes, you're correct.
1: Yeah. Now, the thing that I find interesting about this is is that they've got Toshiba in there and they have two different Toshiba drives and one has a failure rate of 1.5% and the other one has a failure rate of 2.3% but they both have one group has only 45 drives the other one has 146 I think it's not until you get into the thousands and thousands of drives that you can say that these values get to be representative I mean sure you're going to have some drives, and you're going to have two dead ones. But that doesn't mean that the drives are duds. It just right. means that the drives that you happen to get are bad. Someone might have dropped them.
0: Right. So this stuff really is like it's helpful for larger organizations trying to make you know longer term decisions about where to invest. Not necessarily for your average consumer about like where should my two new drives for my NAS come from.
1: But I, I do like the 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 low. Failure rates on some of these. Not really sure if I would use this to decide what I was going to buy, because usually I decide based on on price per gigabyte. Um, for, for me, that's a better indicator of what I'm going to buy than it is anything else, because I wind up using it on ZFS. And if there's a problem with the drive, ZFS will find out. And because I've got redundancy, hopefully they won't all die at once touching wood. Um. Basically, they're, they're saying that the Hitachi are continuing to show impressive longevity with three 4-terabyte models and one 3-terabyte model, both boasting a sub-1% annualized failure rate. So, theoretically, if you bought 50 drives, you wouldn't have a failure over a year, theoretically. And over two years, you'd have one drive fail. Three years, none. Four years, you'd have a second. But that's not bad. Am I doing that right? Maybe. But yeah, everyone seems to quote Backblaze's uh, reports. And I always find them interesting, but I haven't used them. It hasn't influenced the drives I buy yet. I keep buying Toshiba. And what's Rikai saying? Uh, Western Digital, they split apart a couple. Um, yeah, they they sold Hitachi's hard drive business to Toshiba in a complete buyout. Huh. So Western Digital owned Hitachi, and they sold it to to Toshiba, and that's why some of my Toshiba drives say Hitachi inside. That makes sense. I seem to recall that. But yeah, you sometimes don't know what drive you're buying. You don't know who runs them. But yeah, Western Digital.
0: What? Hubata? Oh, yeah. So it looks like um, looks like that never quite fully happened. And so as of October 19th, 2015, HGST is a Western Digital brand and no longer a separate entity. Okay. So there we go. It kind of hmm. had a long transition period there, but is currently under Western Digital. Yeah. <laughs> this is complicated. Hopefully, <laughs> it seems like at least in general... People have had, at least like watching here today, people have had relatively good experiences with modern drives. And that would be the best case scenario is if like regardless of what you pick, you get a relatively good performer, especially for everyday use cases.
1: Yeah, remember last week someone said mix up your batches? Mm-hmm. If you're gonna buy a given drive, buy it from two or three different vendors. Right. It's not always practical because then you bump up shipping costs. And sometimes right. costs is is very important to people. So If you want to do it, do it. Uh,
0: Sure, yeah, absolutely. But if you can get away with it, yeah, maybe not. Or then, you know, just make sure you have uh, good backup hygiene. Uh, And if you don't have crazy redundancy or reliability requirements, then hopefully that should be good enough.
1: Don't be scuffing along the carpet and touching your drives with static electricity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Wear uh, Wear your little grounding cable. Make sure.
1: I believe so, yes. You don't want to be doing that.
0: Awesome. Uh, okay. Uh, anything else on this one that you thought was interesting?
1: Um, if anyone has strong opinions about drives that they don't want to buy, let I, us know. It would
0: be interesting to hear some horror stories. Obviously, anecdotes are anecdotes, but uh, nevertheless, yes. it could be quite entertaining. Yes. So please do write in. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, if you don't want to have to worry about what hard drive is the best to buy... Our next sponsor, hey, they're just the people to talk to. Go head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you will find a hardware provider like no one else in the industry. They've got hordes of super talented sales engineers just waiting to help you buy the next perfect server powered by their incredible Intel processors. Yeah, that's right. You get white glove service, someone to talk to, to help, you know, they genuinely want to understand what you're trying to do they know they have awesome customers you can see some right there on their website people like sony and disney yelp evernote nasa right these are big names with serious data needs ix systems understands it they frequently you know go check out their blog they they totally highlight a lot of these black backblaze numbers and other things they work with the open cfs project they are experts in storage storage configurations and running these things at scale so whether you just need a new nas for your house in which case Go pop over to ixsystemscom techsnap and go look at the free NAS Mini. You will not be disappointed. If you've ever if you've never had a chance to check out one of these things in person, they're beautiful, immaculately put together, really top notch hardware. You can tell that they've taken a lot of time to, you know, to understand the various use cases, make sure that this thing is robust. It's super easy to replace hard drives, and if you have any problems, like you can just go, you know, go go talk to iXsystems and they'll make sure you're taken care of. You're never going to get in one of these situations where you're struggling to find support because IX systems, that's what their highest priority is, right? They're all about customer service and ensuring that you have the best experience possible. You will not be disappointed. If you need more than that, oh, my friends, they have options for you. Go check out, you know, you can get servers, tons of awesome custom servers, or go check out that true rack, even if you're not going to buy it today. Maybe you know some people who do need, you know, do have serious data needs. They're looking to replace some of their proprietary you know, sand technologies, then the, the large data stores at their company, a true rack is an awesome fit. If you're really doing big data, you need in-house soli- solutions And it just shows IX systems. They think big, they know how to work big. They know what they're doing. So go on over to IX systems.com slash tech There you will find an awesome guide to buying hardware for open source or buying hardware for open source technologies. They, they know all the things, you know, They've been in this game a long time. They know how to configure your servers for you. They'll make sure that it arrives at your data center set up properly, ready to be racked up, plugged in, and ready to go. They know that you take this seriously. They know that your work is important and that you deserve a custom server for your custom workload. Go on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and get started with all this goodness today. Thank you to IX Systems. Okay. I guess that brings us to our final story of the main segment today. What it do you have does. for our audience? This one looks interesting.
1: It does. Um, now, this seemed to come out last week. Mm-hmm. Just like
0: A day th- this or two is after. dated
1: 5 third, 5. Eight, this is dated the day after we, we <laughs> our last talk. I hate when that happens. I think it actually came out that night.
0: Mm. Yeah, I you seem to
1: recall right. re- reading something about it that day. But um, we did a story a while back about a, a Google phishing thing that was very similar. It, it had something that looked very official, very real, similar to this. Um, but the, this is slightly different. They weren't, um, I, I can't tell you why it's different because I don't remember the old one now. But we'll go through this one. Um, can you pull up this first video, uh, th- this first graphic on the screen? That's the one that says re- real email and the fake email. Now, there are some obvious differences between the two. Uh, can you scroll up just a little bit? Other way.
0: Oh, yep, Here Sorry.
1: we go. Yeah, sorry. There we go. Yeah, that—that that is scrolling down. Yeah, sorry. Um, now... What they have here is a real email where someone is asking you to look at a document. But you can't actually fake that with this type of thing because it's actually a different process that goes on. So what they've done is they're sending you an email that says, we want to share this document with you. And it looks similar, but there are obvious differences. (coughs) Pardon me. And so, if you go on to the next image and have a look at that one, the difference here is that it's just it's a normal sort of login. It asks you, do you want to choose this account or the next, next account? And on the next image, it says, Google Docs would like to send, read, delete, and manage your email, manage your contacts. So, in effect, Google Docs is saying, can we have access to your entire Gmail account? And... If you weren't paying attention and people don't pay attention you would just click allow on this because you want to see the document that somebody shared with you but this is not giving permission giving you access to this you never get asked this type of question if you're if a document is being shared with you it's much uh, it's a much more streamlined process but I'm sure there's many people out there who have never had a Google Doc shared with them, and they would have no idea of what this would look like. And so they're just click, 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 allow. Can I see the document now? And, well, no, you can't see the document now because there is no document. And by the time you click allow, they have access already to all your email, all your Google Hangout chats, and all of your contacts. They've got all that. Just like that. Um, can you, Wes, can you forward the graph to um, the fourth image? One, two, three, four more images over. Um, There is only one way that you can actually see it, and that is if you click on Google Docs
0: and and you'll see the developer info.
1: And so that is not Google Docs. That is the guy that is taking advantage of you. Now, why do they want all this information? Because people email sensitive stuff around. And once they've got all this stuff, well, I'm sorry, you're screwed. Right. Um, basically, this email phishing worm was masquerading as Google Docs, and it claims to be from a friend of yours. Why does it claim to be from a friend of yours? Because they clicked on the same thing. Their contacts were grabbed, and it was sent to you by them on behalf of this worm. So nobody's actually sending it to you except the people that created this terrible phishing attack. Um, now, the upside to this, and they use this upside-down oh. in, the, in the article here, is it's closely tied to Google's infrastructure. Is that Google has some control over it. So they shut down the OAuth request, which had to be integrated into the email, and redirected users to an error page. They also auto revoked the permissions from everyone's accounts. And for a time, the worm had total access to the victim's email. So in addition to spamming all your contacts, it would have copied all your emails and all your Hangout chats to a third-party service. So those are gone. You have no control of that. That information is gone. So... Um, the main thing I think about here is that, so any secrets you had in those emails, anything like logins or passwords or, you know, bank account information, anything that might've been passed to you privately, yeah, that's gone.
0: I can think of a lot of people who, you know, especially before things like Google Drive or other things existed, you know, you'd email yourself something sensitive or something you needed to know later, like, oh, here's a handy reference. Yep. All of that stuff. Wow.
1: Anything in any Google Hangout is gone.
0: Yeah, which I be have very that. private.
1: So, extremely. So now, this can be used for more phishing attacks, like spear phishing attacks, which are d- directed exactly at you, because they have a lot more information about you. Like, they know your email address. Right. They know a lot of your friends' names. They know the Google products that you <laughs> use.
0: So they could really craft something specific to you that would seem even more plausible. Yep. Wow. Now I mean they could probably even it, yeah, then see, you know, like people you'd shared documents with in the past or things things like that. That's that's frightening. And
1: depending on who they got, there could be some very sensitive business emails or organizational emails in there and they can be dumped to the public domain. That'll expose a lot of stuff that people really didn't want exposed like what happened at the DNC, but they mentioned that in the article. I'm not picking them out just for that. So the one thing that this author goes on to say is he thinks we'll see a redesign of how the Google OAuth pages work. We should add a link to the notes about what OAuth is because a lot of people don't understand, and I'll Add a link to the Wikipedia article in there.
0: Oh, yeah, so that's a great idea.
1: He figures that the problem is that the true identity, he uses entity, but I, I say identity. The true identity you're granting permissions to is buried under a drop down window. So it says Google Auth, but they can put anything there. So really, what it should do is display a lot more information about that person, preferably. The information you get when you click the drop-down box so you can at least see what's going on. Um, But like he says, right now, it depends on people acting nicely and doing the right thing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of crap people out there uh, don't do the nice thing, and are not acting in your best
0: interests. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, the world we live in now, the internet we have now, is a is a scary place where if someone can take advantage of something, they probably will, or maybe already have. Yes,
1: yes, and they're scumbags.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, and they're scumbags. Like we can't, yeah, can't say that enough. <sighs> Yikes. Well, did uh, anyone you know become a victim of this thing? I heard. No. I heard people discussing it, you know, like in the elevator and around the office. So it was definitely talked about. I think. IT, you know, IT people were pretty quick to send out notices saying like, whoa, you know, watch out for this kind of stuff. But
1: yeah, I I saw a lot of people um, talked about it on Facebook that Mm -hmm. came up a lot on Facebook, but I didn't hear anyone saying, hey, listen, we got stuck by that. I didn't hear any of that anywhere. So thankfully,
0: yeah, that's excellent. Do you use uh, OAuth things much, or like have you used this functionality at all in your life?
1: Um, yep. I use Gmail. I use Google Docs. Mm-hmm. I share Google Docs with other people. Other people share Google Docs with me. Our, our Jupiter, yeah. we, we use it here. Our show at work.
0: notes are frequently shared with Google Docs. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's very prevalent all the time. Yes. All right. Well, any we takeaways have, here?
1: Fortunately, we don't have well. I don't have any sensitive information in this Google Docs, but mm-hmm. I have other Google Docs that have sensitive stuff. Yeah. Um, just be very careful whenever you're granting permissions and stuff like that. Re- read the fine prints. See mm-hmm. what they're asking for. And if you're in doubt, just don't click through and then contact your friend and yeah. say, hey, listen, did you do this? Doesn't take long.
0: Yeah, give, them a, give them, them a phone call or something and you know, yep. go verify yep. that, yes, you're yep. actually trying to share this with me. Excellent okay well uh, with that let's move on to our final sponsor this evening. that's our friends over at Ting Ting Ting's on a mission to make mobile make sense the current mobile industry it just it just doesn't it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense for small businesses it doesn't make sense for you or I or people on this network and it certainly doesn't make sense for your pocketbook so Ting mixes things up how do they do that well my friends it's all about the minutes messages and megabytes yeah that's right you head on over to techsnap.ting.com you'll find a mobile service provider that lets you pay for what you use yeah that's right pay for what you use so to get started with ting it's just six dollars a month yeah that's right that's the base rate then you head on over to the rates page there you'll find this lovely interactive chart Click around and you can estimate your usage. They also have a very handy tool which will log into your current cellular service provider and will do some comparisons and estimate how much you might save in the next two years, which, hey, if you see a big number, I think you'll be very happy and you likely will because $6 a line, then you just pay for what you use, right? So like, okay, well, maybe you use, use a little bit of minutes, maybe some messages, but probably not. I mean, come on, it's 2017, then some data, yeah, for under $30 a month. And these are just estimates, right? You probably won't use all that data. And if you don't, you don't pay for it. Plus, a ton of the things that you might not expect to be included on Ting, they're totally included. So like things like three-way calling, voicemail, tethering. Yeah, tethering. Ting knows. You're you're a professional, busy professional. Sometimes, you know what? You need internet on your laptop. There's no Wi-Fi available. You want to tether? You're an adult. Just do it. Data is data. And Ting gets that. So you can just pay for what? you use there's no contracts or early termination fees you don't have to worry about well uh, overages i use more data than i'm than i'm allowed to no on ting there there is that doesn't even make sense on ting use the data you need pay for it it gives you a lot more flexibility so if you need a little more some month then sure you know you paid more that month but that's okay you got real utility out of it most other months you pay a little bit less if you're like me you probably have wi-fi at home on the bus at work So Ting becomes a great deal where you're really just paying for the things that you're using. You're not paying to have this line waiting around, not being used. And if you need a backup line or something like that, Ting is a perfect choice for you because it's $6 a month. That thing can just hang right there in the background. And if you go to techsniff.ting.com, they'll get you started with a $25 service credit. So whether you're going to use that on your first month, it might pay for even more than your first month if you're like me, or... You know, maybe maybe you didn't want to bring your own phone. You don't have a phone that you like. You want to get a new phone. Ting also has an awesome shop. So go over to techsnap.ting.com slash shop. There you'll find SIM cards plus a whole bunch of awesome phones. They've got the newest and greatest. They've got some bargain basement killer deals on basic smartphones that pair so well with that low, low starting price of $6 a month. And they've got some awesome tethering devices, you know. So if you just need like a Wi-Fi hotspot, this Ting worked great for that as well. So don't waste any more time being stuck in a contract with one of those big carriers. Go to TechSnap.Ting.com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Well, that brings us to this week's feedback, the time in the show where we take some time and listen to you, our dear audience, with your many concerns, criticisms, comments. Congratulations. All of the above, it turns out. First up, we've got a letter from our friend David. He's writing to us about the Intel AMT bug, which is something we covered last week in episode 317. He writes, Thanks for covering this. I just checked, and it seems that a lot of our quote-unquote enterprise-grade laptops have these, i.e., I quickly turned it off on our ThinkPad T430. This might be a little more widespread than anticipated. Keep up the great show. Hey, well, thank you, David. That's a that's a great public service announcement. Yeah, I imagine if you are in the enterprise space, it very well may be that these things, you know, exist. Maybe they're enabled. Maybe a previous incarnation of the IT support staff had enabled them at one point. So, if you are in any kind of environment like that, it would always be good due diligence to check.
1: I didn't check mine,
0: Dan. But come on,
1: it's 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 a MacBook.
0: Oh yeah, okay. Well, then you're probably
1: fine. They don't have Intel in there anymore, do they?
0: No, they do, but uh, I doubt they have this feature enabled or yeah. in the firmware. I would be I would be surprised yeah. by that, at least given and these, these are, complaints.
1: And these are AMD sixty fours, but oh, okay. they could still be Intel's,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, sneaky.
1: Well, I think FreeBSD uses the term AMD sixty four for any sixty four bit thing.
0: Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah,
1: because. because they were the first
0: right I yeah think. exactly and then intel licensed it from them rather than them licensing like x86 from intel or i think they agreed on like a patent exchange of you know that's pretty uh, cool yeah exactly awesome well uh, i definitely appreciate david writing in it's great to know that and it's always a good reminder to go check your shit yeah i don't know that's almost the same as patch your shit right so same idea yes.
1: very close very close
0: awesome okay so up next we've got some feedback from jason Jason's writing to us about Beehive VGA pass-through. Interesting. Hey, guys. I've been listening to TechSnap for over two years and think you guys are more than worthy successors to Chris and Alan. You don't need my validation. Thanks, Jason. So keep on keeping on. I had a question before I dive too deep into this personal project. What is the status of Beehive as it relates to PCI graphics card pass-through to a Beehive guest? My goal would be to run FreeBSD as a hypervisor plus jail host, since I am running into the rough edges of ZFS on Linux. Well, just as a secondary comment, I'd love to hear more about that. So if you do want to comment about your rough edges with ZFS on Linux, please do write in again. He continues, Plus, I admire the development model of FreeBSD. I would, however, like to have a Linux virtual machine to use for development and gaming with as native performance as possible. The Beehive Wiki says support for PCI device pass-through exists, but doesn't support VGA pass-through. However, a Beehive-related mailing list I read that this should be possible using UEFI sidestepping the need for VGA pass-through. This sounds similar to using OVMF, uh, UEFI implementation, with KVM to sidestep similar issues with VGA pass-through on Linux. Any insights on this issue? Thanks a bunch. Jason. Well, my FreeBSD friend, I'm going to turn this one over to you.
1: I had no idea, so I went and asked. Nice. Um, I have not used Beehive, but I went to the Beehive IRC channel on Freenode. And so I asked this question. And so what I get told is that as far as this person knows, it's a work in progress. And they suggest checking the mailing list. You did say you did. As... People are getting different results with some patches now. For example, this person had an Ubuntu and a Windows guest, which would die with different errors, but the patches uh, may have been fixed. And he got a FreeBSD guest up and it could see the GPU, load the driver, but Xorg failed to init it. So, it sounds like a lot of people are doing a lot of work on it and things are progressing. But I think what they need is more people testing because there's such a huge variety of hardware out there. It's hard to get it all right for everything unless they have feedback from people that have tried it. So if you can, I would say install it and try it and see what happens and give them feedback um, and help progress it along. I've not had a chance to use Beehive yet. It would be wonderful. It's... It'll run fine on these boxes, but I've just got so many other projects on the way at the moment that I have not tried it.
0: Yeah, that but, makes sense. I do sympathize yeah. with uh, Jason's use case, though. It would be, um, mm. you know, I, I know a lot of people who play with similar things on the KVM and Linux side, and the the, the the ability to have a virtualized operating system, but with that graphical performance, really is kind of the, you know, the best that you can imagine. So you can really do that. You know, if you want to run Windows, if you want to run Linux, or whatever you can use the base OS that you want in this case FreeBSD yep. and still have all the you know have all the nice shiny features so
1: and just swap from one to the next and try it yeah you know?
0: right exactly i have been i have been very impressed with the beehive you know the people working on beehive they've really made leaps and bounds it's gone from you know like kind of obscure brand new to just like in a couple of years now it seems like a lot of a lot of people are actually using it in production or getting ready to uh,
1: if you listen to the story that um, Oh, I cannot remember his name. Oh, lives in Portland. Oh, Michael Dexter. I probably had the city wrong, but Michael Dexter told a great story once about how he met these these folks, and they were building this, and he said, oh, could you do it this way? And it was only a very short while after that that they did it. So it's a small team doing lots of work, and I'm sure more help is, is welcome, but join the mailing list and find out.
0: Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. And let us know how it goes if you get it working. Uh, yeah, we'd love to hear more. Okay. On to the next item in the in the mailbag here, and that is a letter from Boz. Uh, he writes to us about our coverage of Tarsnap. Hey, guys. Thanks for the continuation of this great show. I actually started using Tarsnap on an earlier item when Alan Jude covered it. It's been great for me as a freelancer, helping me to keep my accounting records safely backed up. As mentioned, I did create a script keeping the last three backup in Tarsnap so that a new backup deletes the oldest after creation of the new one, which is weekly and done by a cron job. And yes, don't worry, I have my keys backed up and did test my keys for proper backup restoring. Amazing work. Keep it up. Hey, thank you very much, Baz. We really appreciate it. And it's always nice to hear, um, you know, we definitely like Tarsnap here at the TechSnap program, so it's awesome to hear someone who's satisfied with it and is able to you know, integrated in. And I think things like that are exactly kind of what we were talking about. There may be other solutions, paid solutions out there that are easier to use or work better for your mom or, or any of those things. But Tarsnap with its, like, command line focus, its similarity to the TAR command makes it really easy, you know, if you are already comfortable with cron jobs and bash scripts, super easy yeah. to get get it integrated into your workflow.
1: And there are so many people whose backups are just a cron job
0: Right, yeah, exactly. With a,
1: tar, with a tarball. Yeah, with a tar
0: and or an r or, you know, whatever.
1: The only difference here is that you're tarballing to a f- remote system. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Baz. We really appreciate the kind words and your experience. Up next, our friend Corey is writing to us about Borg Backup, which is a backup program we mentioned just at the tail end of Episode 317. Hi, Dan and Wes. I appreciate the deep dives into Bacula and Tarsnap. I was glad to hear Borg Backup mentioned briefly, but I think it deserves a lot more attention. I find Borg an incredibly good system for my needs. Not only does it encrypt everything before it leaves the client, hey, that sounds great, but it is relatively simple to set up and fully deduplicates. I manage four Borg servers and six clients. Two of these servers are actually just a spinning external hard drive attached to a Raspberry Pi 3, so the hardware and electricity is dirt cheap. But they manage just fine. I highly recommend Borg for your listeners. Keep up the, keep up the great discussions and deep diving. Oh, you know we will, Corey. But thank you very much for your kind words. It's awesome to know. You know, I've played with with Borg a little bit myself, uh, but I'm not using it like widespread or anything like that right now. So it's awesome to have some. You know, someone report back in, and this seems like something that maybe I will spend some time. I was, you know, I need to redo some of my backup infrastructure anyway, so I might spend some time looking at. What would that look like with Borg? And, uh, hey, we'll talk about it more on this here program.
1: What What OS were you running the server on? Is, is it a client-server type arrangement, or is it just... How does it...
0: You know, I'm actually not sure. I haven't used it a ton. I've just played with it, like, as a client-only thing. Let's find out.
1: So, if there is a client, there must, there must be the, the server side to it. Okay, I think the server to use, I was reading about it today on Reddit, the, the deduplication occurs courtesy of ZFS. So that dedupe, I believe, is not built into Borg itself. It's part of the OS. That's not a bad thing. I'd rather trust the dedupe on um, ZFS. If I was developing something, I'd rather, you know, someone's already done dedupe. Let me use theirs. I know other software uses other things. I'm quite sure that Colin has written his own, and I'm quite sure that another backup service that I used to work for at one time does their own dedupe.
0: Oh, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, here we uh, here we have some of the features. They advertise speed, performance critical code is implemented in C slash Siphon. They've got data encryption, compression, offsite backup. So it looks like Borg can store data on any remote host accessible over SSH. Um, if Borg is installed on the remote host, big performance gains can be achieved compared to using a network file system. This one I like a lot. Backups mountable as file systems. That sounds pretty pretty nice if, uh, if they make it easy for you to be able to mount your mount your data to you know access it with any old thing without maybe necessarily having to restore the full backup, especially if you don't necessarily have space to do that. And it sounds like they have uh, pretty good platform support here, supporting Linux, OSX, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD, SigWin, Oh, not supported, no binaries yet, but maybe the potential's there. And Linux subsystem for Windows 10. Hey, interesting. So maybe this is a way you can do some backups with this neat program, even on Windows.
1: There is a Python. Uh, it, I think it's written in Python. Is that what the doc says there? Because it, uh, there's a PY Borg backup port on FreeBSD. It's been there since February 16th. Oh, no, that was the last commit. Um, it's been there since April
0: 2016. Oh, let's see here. Yep, looks like it is written in Python. Yep. Hey, cool. I okay. know Python. I could uh, maybe I can contribute to that. Awesome. Maybe you could. Well, uh, thank you very much, Corey, and uh, other people, people like Stochastics and others in our IRC who are chiming in, talking about how they've used Borg. Um, hey, awesome. I think I'll definitely be giving it more of a trial run in my home setup. Okay. They have Borg Web. Oh, nice. Web interface always, you know, that always, sometimes that's the thing that will seal the deal for, some, for a particular use case.
1: Why aren't they showing us the screenshots? Where are the
0: screenshots? <laughs> yeah, that's the worst, especially Wait. for like a web client or something like that, where you're like, all I care about is what it looks like.
1: Yeah, I just want to see what it looks like. I don't see it. <laughs> anyway. Okay, sorry.
0: No, no, not a problem. Um, I think that brings us to the last item in this week's mailbag, and that is from our friend Kevin. Kevin writes to us about inexpensive managed switches. Do you have any suggestions for inexpensive managed switches that do VLANs right? I've got a TP-Link switch, which is a nice device for super cheap, but you can't specify which VLAN the switch's management interface is on. All ports are hard-coded members of VLAN 1 so you can't truly isolate management on its own VLAN. I've seen Netgears that do the same thing. Oh. Good question, Kevin. Um, you know, that's something, that's something I've wanted in the past as well. You know, you want... I don't want to go out and necessarily have to buy a really big fancy switch, um, but I do want to have, you know, nice control and have the, the features of a managed switch. Anything that comes to mind uh, in your amazing well. rack of equipment?
1: This is only about 30 bucks, maybe 20 or 30 bucks. And I know it's managed, but I don't know any details about the VLAN. I've never used that, but I've used this at work here. Sorry, at home here. And it's a one gig switch. It was only about 30 bucks, and I quite like it. Nice little four port, five port. One of the ports is sort of set aside you have a look there you see how one of the ports is sort oh, of yeah. different from the other ones and I think that's may just be because they had a four port piece of hardware and they put another one in oh
0: separate. yeah augmented the, the chassis in the case there
1: yeah, yeah but this is a cute little hub um, details right there I don't really know if you can still get these or not but it is a GS105EV2, and it gives you the default details on how to get into it. But I've liked it. I've never used it as a managed switch, but apparently it is. But he did mention um, neck, neck gear itself, and that's what that is. Did he mention neck gear or did you? No, you did, didn't you?
0: Uh, no, he, he does mention it uh, down there right at the bottom. He says he's seen them doing the having the same problem where he couldn't, you know, completely isolate
1: his oh, management.
0: Okay. Which yeah, you know, I can um, understand why why one might want to do that. Do
1: you on your managed switches at home, do you put um, your management port on a different VLAN altogether, or do you just put it on the VLAN you always use?
0: You know, that's a good question. I think I've I've probably done it both ways in the past.
1: like I, One of the problems I ran into on in the weekend is that all my servers are on the default VLAN mm-hmm. for historical reasons. They're all on that one. They all have an IP address in the 10.53 okay. range. And that's my default VLAN as well. And I don't know how to move them all over to another VLAN. Uh, I could do that, but I have to change my pf sense box mm-hmm. to do everything else different so right. i'm not, Reset not, up the not routing. sure if i want to do that i'm not sure if i want to do that that's the hardest part
0: mm-hmm. yeah no definitely yeah you know and it depends on on what your requirements are you know how stringent your security needs to be uh you know what what access yeah. you're trying to protect against and how convenient yeah. that is
1: and and i'm at home mm-hmm. and i'm only doing it because I can do it, not because it's not because you extremely have to do Security it. conscious, yeah. Right. I like to keep the servers here. I like to keep the TV stuff out there. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. only reason I'm doing VLAN right. I mean, too. just
0: adding a little bit of basic VLAN, you know, functionality can get you along a, long, a, a mm-hmm. pretty long way. Especially if you want to add, you know, here's for my like IoT things. Here's for my mm-hmm. guest wireless yeah. network, whatever.
1: And I actually keep them on different subnets as well, mm-hmm. just so that I know that you know, ten fifty two is. Wireless and ten point seventy eight is Wi Fi. Yeah, that just, comes
0: in really handy, especially yeah, you know, if you just want like quick diagnosis or other things like I don't recognize yeah. this MAC address. Like, what is this?
1: Yeah, do you, do you keep a spreadsheet of MAC addresses?
0: Um, I have a I have a config file for some that are that are whitelisted or you know pinned to certain IP addresses. So I would not quite an open, yeah. but uh, something like that.
1: I I started writing them down in a spreadsheet in yeah. Google Docs.
0: Oh yeah, that that seems like that would work nicely. And you just have a column for you know name and and whatever other information yep. you need.
1: Yep. Interesting. This is this machine. It has these MAC addresses. Just because I wind up knowing, having to find out what it is
0: sometimes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, or you could easily then you know make a script or other thing that would go audit your network for unknown MAC addresses. Or have you done that? I have not, but uh, I, if I, I have had more people to... over or like neighbors, i I would maybe consider it. And it might just be a kind of fun project anyway. Yeah,
1: find out what you've got.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. Okay, well, I guess that wraps up our feedback this week. Thank you to everyone who took the time to write in. Uh, I know I appreciate it. I'm sure Dan does as well. It gives us, one, something interesting to talk about, and two, I really love the connection to the audience. You know, it gives us feedback on how we're doing, things we want to do, or things that you guys want to hear more about, right? I'm definitely going to go check out Borg more. Uh, I think it's probably worth exploring some other backup solutions. Is that something the audience is definitely interested in? And it makes me feel like I get to know you guys just a little bit better. So if you want to contact us, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There you'll find a form to send us these emails that you see every week. Or you can find us on Twitter. Stay tuned to the end of the program for our Twitter addresses. Or go over to techsnap.reddit.com. You can also contribute right there. There's so many wonderful ways. There's really no excuse. So we will be sure to see you next week on the feedback segment. And that brings us to the final segment of today's TechSnap program. That's right. It's everyone's favorite, the Roundup, the time in the program where we cover stories we just didn't have enough time to cover before. We don't get to do a deep dive, but that doesn't mean they're not worth covering. So what do you have for us this week, Dan?
1: We've talked about backdoors. We've talked about why backdoors are bad. So here's a very simple explanation for non-technical folks of why backdoors are bad. Because when the politicians talk about it, it sounds like a very good idea.
0: Oh, right. yeah, that
1: sounds good. We need the this to The bad guys are safe. doing something. We can find out what they're doing and we can look at it. Well, no, because it's not just for bad guys. Because when there's a backdoor, it gets abused. Exactly. And we know it gets abused because we've seen backdoors pop up. And we have no idea how many times they've been abused in the past when they've been put in accidentally On purpose type thing. So basically, the analogy they give is a lock and a key. And the government decides that everyone's house has to have a lock, but everyone has to leave a key under the mat just in case a police officer needs to get in. And the analogy they give is, well, what if you have a corrupt cop? What if they go in? Or what if someone who's not a cop decides to use a key that's under the mat that everyone knows about? Or, you know, nobody would do that. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone go go into my house with that key? Well, we were listening earlier about people with, what was it, the 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 gold ox? Right. People do things for a lot of reasons, and if there's a key under the mat, you're going to get burgled.
0: Yeah, I like this so. line here, and it doesn't end there. You see. Criminals don't just wait for information to be available before attempting to commit crimes. No, that's right. They'll attempt to figure out weaknesses in the security, unlocked entrances, inhabitant behavior patterns, etc., to find a way into a building even without knowledge of a back door. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like even if you have no reason to suspect that you're being targeted or could be targeted or any of those things, people are actively yes. trying to exploit this for their own financial gain or for other nefarious reasons.
1: Backdoors are bad
0: Yeah, exactly this looks like a great find um, It is. it can be one of those concepts you know you're at Thanksgiving dinner or other things and if you're not prepared or you only have like the technical jargon it can be hard to explain to a layperson about like mm-hmm. this is why it's important for your security yes we understand there can be you know sometimes it gets in the way of lawful enforcement of the laws or other things but this is very important and it's a Pandora's box we can't do it safely it's just not possible
1: same thing with uh apple not wanting to root the iphone
0: right yes exactly they're
1: making it more and more secure because that's better for everyone
0: Mm -hmm. props to them for that i'm i am i am glad to see that and you know having the tools in our everyday life even if we choose not to but having the tools to make you know make privacy conscious decisions where we can actually protect things that are important to our individual freedom and liberty
1: yeah it's very important i agree
0: Okay, well, next in the roundup is a little bit of follow-up to last week's show. How to remote hijack computers (laughs) using Intel's insecure chips. Just use an empty login string. (laughs) Really?
1: I thought that was interesting. (laughs) Basically, all you do is you just, instead of, it's expecting a certain value, and all you do is you strip it out, and it works. It's a lot easier than it sounded when we were talking about it last last week. Uh, and this is the vulnerability we were talking about last week, isn't it? This is it, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, it, it is. is. It is. Um, so, yeah, um, this is the uh, backdoor, as a matter of fact. Um, and by backdoor, I mean this is a management interface that, that would... M- most likely be used by big enterprises to say upgrade a remote desktop or laptop and it just so happens the the authentication is not very good Yikes. it can be bypassed yeah, easily I like,
0: I like this description the AMT is accessed over the network via a bog-standard interface. The service listens on ports 16992 and 16993. Visiting this with a browser brings up a prompt for a password, and this passphrase is sent using standard HTTP Digest authentication. But if you send an empty response, the firmware is fooled into thinking this is correct and lets you write through. Boy, that really couldn't get any easier, could it? <sighs> I don't even know. I just don't I don't know what to say about that one besides it, being it, disappointed.
1: It has to be, you know. Maybe they're they're checking to make sure that the thing that you provided matches the thing that they had. Or something like that. It's just a test condition that they never thought of. It's the default value and I would love to see the code. Show me the code, please. I want to see how this got through. This is just so interesting.
0: Yeah, and this was a good uh, this was a good um, register article. They kind of go into a little deeper dive here, almost in text map mm-hmm. style, uh, into yep. some of the internals here. So if you're curious about this, you want to learn more, poke into the you know secret underpinnings of Intel. This yep. is a good find.
1: And on page two, they go into HP, Lenovo, Fujitsu, Hewlett Packard, Dell, Cisco, and Apple, talking about all. Uh, The replies they get back when they talk to them. And yeah, Apple is not affected because they don't ship with that.
0: Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, there's not a huge reason necessarily for Apple to. So I would see it mostly, expect to see it mostly in, in, yeah, like enterprise laptops where you need to manage a fleet of, you know, 5,000 of them. And this can provide an easy way to go flash them or update things or whatever.
1: And it's not Intel providing the patches, it's the individual manufacturers have to set that out. Right. So. Bug your manufacturer, get them to patch their shit.
0: Yeah, exactly. And if you know people, you know, know people affected, the uh, let us know. And uh, I'm sure we'd love yes. to hear any updates about this. Yes, I've yet to meet someone personally affected, but I would love to hear more about mm-hmm. you know the nitty gritty. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, next up in the roundup, a massive vulnerability in Windows Defender leaves most Windows PCs vulnerable. So if you're not vulnerable to the Intel thing, hey, maybe you're in luck and you're vulnerable for this. Yeah. Let's hope not.
1: Well, Windows Defender has a bug in it. Now, d- d- is Windows Defender marketed as a firewall, or is it more along the lines of uh, a virus scanner? I
0: it, think somewhere it, is in it... between. Uh, I mean, th- there is like a Windows firewall. I don't know how much the lines are blurred between those yeah. things.
1: But anyway, the thing... The thing doesn't work well, <laughs> and everyone that had it seems to be vulnerable because it, it it's Windows seven, eight, eight point one, ten, and Server twenty sixteen, and Windows Defender is installed by default on all consumer oriented Windows PCs. So you've got this on Windows whether you bought it or not, and. <sighs> The ca- ca- word of the critical flaw first surfaced in a Friday night series of tweets by Arminday. He called it the worst Windows remote code exec in recent memory. So it's a remote code exec. It's not local. It's remote, and warned that an, a- that an attacks that attacks work against a full default and inst- work against a default install don't need to be on the same LAN, and it's wormable. Most security experts assumed Microsoft would require several weeks to patch it. To their surprise, Microsoft pushed the patch out Monday evening—a Monday night patch. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that is actually pretty cool. You don't see that all the time.
1: No. The risk of remote lo- code lo- the, rem- the risk of remote code execution is lower on Windows 10 and 8.1, but it's still there. It's CFG that guards against that. And it's an optional compilation flag set in Visual Studio. So if it's not set, it's not helping you.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But yeah, if you've, got, if you've got Windows Defender, chances are you do if you're running Windows. Make sure you get it patched as soon as you can. In fact, you should always be patching all the time. Set auto patch on if you can.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you might be annoyed at all the, hey, are you ready to reboot your computer? Better than that than being vulnerable. <laughs> it, it does sound like this one uh, is rolling out pretty quick. The The underlying system updates every 40, 48 hours automatically. So once the patch is there, then hopefully that's rolled out mm. right quick. Uh, the security bulletin notes that Microsoft has not seen any public exploitation of the vulnerability. So, hey, audience, we'll just ask again, if you do hear anything about that, send it our way. Okay, so with that uh, disastrous news over, let's talk about our final roundup, Adam, this week. NASA wants you. Yeah, that's right, you. Or maybe Dan. Uh, well, I'm not sure. To make Fortran run faster.
1: Fortran is a really cool language. It really is. Fortran is short for formula translator. I'm quite sure that. Somebody check me on that. I'm quite sure that it's that's what it's for. But Fortran... I remember writing Fortran on punched cards. You would type out the code on the punched cards, make sure you had the cards in the order you'd hand it in through the slot. they would put it through the card reader, and your program would run and sometimes your program would print out a picture or it would do some sort of calculations or stuff. but I guess this would have guessing my age is at about fifteen, so this would have been. Sn- 1976 77 on an IBM 360 I think at University of Ottawa and um, they had a high school club they had a club for high school students and the department of computer science was very gracious in letting us kids use this stuff because this is one of the things that got me in into IT is, is learning this how to code way back then so Unfortunately, I can't help them make it any faster because it is only open to U.S. citizens 18 or older. Guess which one I don't meet. And so they're looking for skilled programmers to download the Fun3D code, analyze its performance bottlenecks, and identify possible modifications that might lead to reducing overtime computational, overall computational time. So I think this is a really good thing because... NASA is one of the coolest places ever, and to help them uh, make their code run faster, that would this is going to attract a lot of talk
0: about like awesome open source style contribution. If you could get code in there, that would be amazing.
1: Yeah, so this is their Fortran based computational fluid dynamics software, Fun Three D. That that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine this would be so. You're gonna help a lot of people. Not just NASA. The stuff that NASA does benefits everyone.
0: Exactly. And like, yeah, this is one of the main reasons like Fortran is still used is it has all these really you know, libraries that have been developed over the years that are very fast, very efficient, um, and as you said, I did check you. It is correct. Formula uh, translation or translator is what it mm-hmm. stood for. Uh, so Fortran is very good. has has things like multiple multi-dimensional arrays and other things built right into the language. So it's used extensively for computational simulations, numerical approximations, any kind of that kind of like big traditional supercomputer supercomputer type work. So this would be That's fascinating. Cool.
1: I wonder if I still have my old Fortran books sitting in the.
0: Oh, you're right gonna have there. to look. That,
1: uh, but anyway, yeah, I I remember d- doing Fortran, and it was a lot of fun back then.
0: Yeah, I did. Uh, I have a physics degree myself, so I did some com- computational simulations. We used C, but uh, Fortran was mostly because our you know the professor teaching the course. That's what he was more familiar. But uh, Fortran was the other big option that a lot of other schools were using still.
1: What branch of physics?
0: Uh myself, actually, computational physics was uh, what I did research on, so this is really right up my alley when I saw this. I was like, Oh, this is so cool, and like for a lot of programmers, I think that you know you're often kind of you can be get really far away from. Like this interesting numerical simulation, backend, raw computation stuff, especially if you're doing like UI work or scripting or other yeah, things. Yeah, so this could be a really good chance to try to, you know, try your hand at something else. And when else are you gonna have a chance or an excuse to go check out NASA's computational fluid dynamics?
1: You have until June 9th, 29th. twenty-ninth. June twenty-ninth. So that's twenty days from today, less than three weeks. <sighs> get to
0: it. Yeah, get to it. Make this stuff faster. Patch their S. Yes. Or something like that. This is so cool. This is really cool. Okay, well, that wraps up the roundup, and therefore this whole program. Anything you'd like to leave this audience with parting words?
1: Patch your shit and have fun.
0: (laughs) Couldn't have said better myself, so we'll just end it right there. This has been episode 318 of the TechSnap program and streamed live on Tuesday, May 9th, 2017. If you'd like to see more of this program, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives of this show, all the other awesome shows, including the newly ended Linux Action Show. Go check out the last episode up there and all the new shows that are starting out. Things like Linux Action News and, yeah, that's right, the much-loved user error. It's coming back to the network. So there's tons of great stuff there. You can also go to jupiterbroadcasting.com contact. There you can find our contact information and a form to fill out if you want to send us feedback. As said before, you can go to techsnap.reddit.com or you can find us both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. He is at techsnap underscore Dan. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you right back here on the TechSnap program next week.